This is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. I'm Monique Mitchelson, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. So I think it's important for us to talk about why we're doing a podcast like this, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. So Monique, did you want to share with the world um, (laughs) what's important about it for you? Sure. Um, So I've been working in private practice for nearly six years now. And the practice that we work in, we we both work in it together, um, really focuses on neurodiversity. So we have a lot of clients um, with neurodiversity, children, adults, and I'm mostly an adult psychologist. Mm -hmm. So most of my clients that I work with in therapy are adults. Um, and I normally focus on doing trauma informed treatment. And I just realized that I wasn't doing the best service to my clients by failing Mm -hmm. to pick up on and register their neurodiversities and then not being able to adapt treatment to suit them. Um, and then not getting the results that we both wanted. And I just started looking into it as well, because there are people in my own family and my personal life that are neurodiverse, um, you know, starting to look into all of this, I realized that I was neurodiverse as well. And it just explained so much. And I just really wanted to share this information, um, with the world, uh, particularly because a lot of neurodiversity in women isn't really recognized, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny because, uh, yeah, I'm sort of work at the opposite end of the spectrum, right? So I mostly work with children. Um, and exactly as you say, you know, one of our main client bases at work is, um, individuals who are neurodiverse in some way. Um, and it's funny because it really wasn't something that I was, uh, aware of and definitely not something that we really learned about in uni. I don't know about your experience, but it was maybe like one class, (laughs) one, you know, one, um, unit of a subject. Um, and it's actually become pretty much the main client group that I work with. Um, and it's similar to your experience, Monique. Um, the more I learned about it, the more I actually started to realize that so many people in my life, um, were neurodiverse. And it's funny, my partner, uh, calls me the Pied Piper of ADHDers, um, that everyone who I'm close to seems to have ADHD. Um, so I don't know what that says about me, but anyway, um, and similar to you, I guess, Monique, I really wanted to do this because I felt like, or I feel like I'm giving the same spiel to people over and over again in practice. You know, what is neurodiversity? What is autism? What is ADHD? Um, what is dyslexia, dysgraphia, all these kind of differences in the way that our brain is set up. Um, and I don't know. I think that there's a real call for people wanting to actually understand more about this now. Yeah, I feel like it's actually a really important part of um, people understanding themselves, understanding why they've had difficulty with so many things in their life. Um, And every client that I've sort of brought it up with, it's been a major groundbreaking moment in therapy for them. Absolutely. You know, to learn how their brain works and to learn how to start to style their life and their lifestyle to suit how Mm. their brain works rather than 
everything working against their brain. Mm, Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, I think this kind of leads into why we wanted to do the neurodivergent woman and not just neurodiversity in general. Um, One of the most rewarding, um, amazing things I love about my job is actually doing um, adult women neurodiversity assessments um, because so frequently in the feedback session, what I hear is, oh, my God, this is the first time I felt normal Mm. in my life. Um, I finally understand that actually the way that I think about it isn't inherently, the way I think about the world isn't inherently wrong or bad or problematic. And I actually understand why I think that way. Mm. So I probably should say too, um, my job as a neuropsych is I mainly do uh, assessment work. So whereas um, Monique, you know, you do a lot of therapy stuff, I'm sort of at the other end of the process um, or the start of the process, I guess, um, going through kind of assessment, diagnostics, that type of thing. Talking about women in particular was really important to me um, because I think there's so many layers of adversity <laughs> that women face for many reasons. Um, and being neurodivergent is just one of those layers. Mm. Definitely women are underdiagnosed. Um, if you think about the historical context of autism and ADHD, mm. Mm. Um, most of the diagnostic criteria were modeled off uh, male children. Absolutely. Um, most of the research subjects in a lot of research were men or male children. Um, so the criteria and all the research hasn't really been inclusive of women and what neurodiversity actually looks like in women because mm. it can look different to how it presents in little boys. A hundred percent. And this is one of my biggest soapbox issues um, is that, you know, the diagnostic criteria, and we're going to talk a little bit about this later as well, but the diagnostic criteria in particular, exactly as you say, Monique, because it was modeled off little boys and, you know, we're talking about autism specifically here, but this is also relevant to ADHD as well um, and other forms of neurodiversity too. But with autism in particular, um, you know, it's really describing a set of behaviors that in my mind just indicate that that person is stressed. (laughs) You know, the diagnostic criteria to me is, is this autistic person under stress, right? And are they actually externalizing? Are they showing their internal experience? And women in particular are taught that it's not okay for us to put our emotions on anyone else. We have to be the caretaker of everyone's emotions Mm. as included. So women on the spectrum in particular tend to internalize a lot of that, mask a lot of that, try and do everything they can to make everyone around them feel as comfortable as possible while internally um, everything's falling apart. You know, I had a client recently um, who was sharing with me, an adult client who was sharing with me that she had um, a blood work test done or, or some kind of medical procedure and they were like, oh, no, we have to do it again. This can't be right because your cortisol levels are off the chart and externally you look like you were fine. And mm-hmm. she was like, oh, no, I always feel like that. That seems absolutely correct. <laughs> and yeah. I guess that's just the disconnect between what we're seeing on the outside versus what's going on in the inside. Um, and I think, you know, really showcasing and understanding what women's internal experience is, is absolutely essential to 
um, closing that diagnostic gap between men and women. Yeah, because I feel like um, women often get told the message, you can't be neurodivergent because you're a woman, you know, or you're functioning too well in society to have neurodivergence, but it's not actually understanding the internal struggles and the amount of effort that actually goes into presenting really well to other people and particularly in specific roles that you might be playing in your life. Um, And I feel like as well, uh, because we live in a patriarchal society, there is a bias towards women's health in general. So often women's health issues, their physical health issues are taken less seriously um, by the medical profession. Their pain, physical pain is taken less seriously. And I think that does translate, um, you know, into this area. And there is that socialization, like you said, of being the caretaker. So we are sent that message from an early age to be social and to fit in and to be part of the group. And you learn early on that if you show any sign of, difference you get bullied um so it's of course it's in your best interest to mask that behavior um so yeah i feel like what we're doing um in this podcast and what many other people around the world are doing and shining a light on women in neurodiversity is really important I feel like it's important for us to have a talk about what is neurodiversity and what's included in that umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you define neurodiversity? Um, For me, it's just a difference in the person's, uh, how their brain is wired and how they see or perceive the world, um, how they um, think in the world as well and what's important to them. And there's so many, um, so much different language around um, like words people use in this space. So we've got neurodiverse, neurodivergent, neurotypical, um, and really my understanding, and, and correct me if you have a different understanding or if this isn't correct, Monique, but neurodiversity refers to the complete spectrum of differences or of ways that the brain can be different, right? So under that umbrella includes people who are neurotypical, includes people who are um, on the autism spectrum who have ADHD or um, anything else. Neurodivergent means people who are not neurotypical and neurotypical means people who have the most common brain type. So being really clear there that it's not neuronormal, everything is normal. Everything's under the umbrella of the diversity of the human species. But typical means most common. So neurotypical, most common brain type, neurodivergent, different brain type, neurodiversity, every single person. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's really inclusive because I think we want to just be aware of the risk of pathologizing mm-hmm. um, something that is different but not wrong. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I think you know the language. Language is so important. I have such strong feelings about language, mm-hmm. um, but unfortunately, you know, diagnostic labels still include that word disorder at mm-hmm. the end of you know ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, mm-hmm. so negative, mm-hmm. autism spectrum disorder, mm-hmm. specific learning disorder. You know, everything's disordered, and again, that really just comes from our medical history, our patriarchy that we live in. Whereas anything that's different, anything that's not typical, 
um, must be wrong, must be problematic, mm-hmm. must be labeled as a pathology. And I think, um, you and I, Monique, really want to get away from that in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we're not responsible for renaming um, everything, um, in, in medical terms, but I think we do want to use language that as much as possible isn't pathologizing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, like, if you are in a minority, whatever minority that you're in, the language that you use is important because, like, working in mental health, there has been a stigma and there is still a stigma about mental health conditions. And I think the language that you use can either further that stigma or destigmatize conditions. And there is um, a movement where people are using person-first language Mm. when referring to their neurodivergence. Um, And it took me a little bit to get my head around this, I guess, coming from the psychological background where everything is more, um, I guess, pathologized. Um, Yeah, it's person like with this disorder. Yeah. Mm. So it's like, you know, you're a person with autism. It's sort of saying that that's, um, yeah, a condition or something that's wrong with you. Whereas if you're putting, you know, who you are first, like your identity first, like I'm an autistic person, um, it's destigmatizing it. And that's the reason for using the person first language. And that's something that's, I think, come up in particularly the autism world um, from the disability movement. Absolutely. Um, And the way that I always explain that to clients, because, you know, you're right, like it does take a little bit to get our heads around um, because we're so conditioned to think of these things as negative. Uh, It's like, oh, I don't want to call this person an autistic person. That's so bad. Mm. But why? Why is it bad? And the way I explain it is, you know, you would never feel bad if someone said, oh, I am an introvert, Mm. right? Or I am an extrovert. Introversion or extroversion, so, you know, whether we are uh, more seeking of um, kind of sensation, social engagement, or whether we recharge by, you know, being alone, um, those are morally neutral terms, right? They're one thing about you. But they're definitely not everything about you, but they also don't say anything moral about you as a person. So we have no problem saying, you know, oh, Sam's an introvert or Emma's an extrovert. But, you know, when when it comes to things like autism, ADHD, we're like, oh, you know, he has ADHD or Mm. she has autism, Mm. like it's a negative condition that they've contracted. Mm, Like an illness or something. Exactly, exactly. Like she has the flu or, Mm. you know, whatever. He has cancer. Um, So I really like that person-first language. But obviously if you are someone who um, is neurodivergent and you prefer different language, then that's totally fine. You know, don't feel pressured for anyone to tell you how to refer to your own brain or your own personhood, refer to it however you want. Um, But for me, I like that. And the example I also use with clients is um, a Harry Potter example. I'm going to quote Dumbledore here, which um, I think he says, fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself Mm. in reference to he who must not be named. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think that's a pretty apt description for the whole um, autism, ADHD, that type of language too. Because I often, because I work with kids, you know, I often get parents saying, how do I tell my child that they have autism? Um, And I always explain that as, well, 
you're not telling them they have anything. They don't have anything. You're helping them explain how their brain works. Mm -hmm. And the label autistic brain is just one way we might call the type of brain that they have. We could call it hoobly goobly brain. It doesn't matter. It's just a word, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But giving that that label that's completely destigmatized helps them to feel destigmatized Mm -hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really important to to talk about this. Um, and, yeah, there are many different labels people use to identify, I guess, their neurodiversity, um, particularly on the autism spectrum. It can be Aspie, um, Auti, Asperger, um, Asperger's. Um, I'd just like to mention the term Asperger's has kind of yeah. fallen out of favor um, because of the history with Hans Asperger. Um, that's And that is actually something really good to look into um, and do some research around if you don't know the story about Hans Asperger. Um, but there are some people who have, you know, had a diagnosis of Asperger's and for them maybe that is what they feel comfortable with, you know, in identifying with or referring to themselves as. And, you know, we're not the sort of tone police here. You know, again, whatever you identify with, that's your identity. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like An Evening in Jasmine's Garden, Merida's Mystical Scottish Forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like Rolling Thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. And new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So we've talked a little bit about, um, you know, what is neurodiversity, neurodivergent, uh, neurotypical um, in a language sense. Um, But I think one thing that's, for me, I guess the core um, differentiation between neurodivergent and neurotypical is around what sort of drives behaviour. And as we kind of go through this podcast and we chat about different topics and we talk to various people, we're going to talk, be talking about lots of different things that are different about the brains between people um, who are neurodivergent and those who are neurotypical. But this kind of really resonates with me as the number one 
um, identifier. And what it is, is it's what drives behavior and what sort of drives your nervous system. For people who are neurodivergent, what tends to drive the nervous system is interest and passion. Mm. Am I interested in this thing? Does it spark joy? Um, Does it bring me passion? Whereas people who are neurotypical, what tends to drive the nervous system is importance. Is this an important thing to be doing? And tribal inclusion. Am I conforming to what's expected of me to maintain my position in the social hierarchy? And, you know, we need each other. Both types of thinking, both ways of being have enabled our species to, um, you know, become the dominant species on the planet. It's neither is better or worse. They're just different. The problem is that the neurodivergent way of thinking has been historically pathologized, not even just said, okay, this is not good. It's like there's something wrong with you if you Mm. think this way, which is absolute crap. Yeah, people Um, have been persecuted. They've been, um, you know, killed for being neurodivergent, you know, a few hundred years ago. They Mm -hmm. would have been probably burned at the stake for Mm. acting strange and maybe being like a witch, you know. (laughs) Absolutely. Something very close to my heart. Mm. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And the reason that neurodivergent people are often thought of as weird in some way is because the focus of their behavior and attention isn't on what it, in inverted commas, should be. Mm. It's on what actually draws their attention. Mm. So for an example, um, I was going for a walk a little while ago with a friend of mine who's an adhd um, and we were just like chit-chatting about nothing important and we're walking along and she started to be really uh, interested in researching like rocks and geology and things like that. We're walking along and we were mid-conversation and she stopped because she saw an interesting rock and she's like, oh my God, Michelle, did you know about this rock and started telling me all these facts about the rock to me? I'm like, I don't give a shit about the rock (laughs) Um, because my nervous system is saying, well, we're in a conversation right now. So what is actually expected or appropriate quote unquote in this situation is to ignore what you find interesting and to actually continue with the chit chat of what we're talking about. Um, and also we're on a trail. And so it's important that we don't stop every two seconds and that we get to the end of the trail. So I found that like a little bit jarring, a bit aversive. Her nervous system was like, it doesn't matter what we're supposed to be doing right now or what's important or how to maintain my position in this kind of um, social situation. I'm interested in the rock. And so that's where my attention is going to go. And imagine how it would have gone if you both had a special interest in rocks. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my God. Exactly. That's such a good point. And, you know, this is the other thing that I uh, chat to parents about all the time. um, Parents of kids who are neurodivergent is the way that people who are neurodivergent connect is different to how neurotypical people connect. So historically, we've had this really horrible narrative that, you know, people who are neurodivergent are terrible at socializing. They don't care about anyone, which is absolute rubbish. Mm. It's just the way that they go about connecting Mm -hmm. is different. So, um, you know, neurodivergent people connect sideways with Mm -hmm. the focus being on the interest. Mm -hmm. Neurotypical people connect front on with a focus being on the relationship. Mm. So um, if you want to connect with a neurodivergent pal, um, find something that they're interested 
in mm-hmm. or something that you're both interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to have incredibly deep, rich, meaningful, um, interesting conversations, interesting experiences mm-hmm. over that, um, mm-hmm. interest. If you try and connect with them about, you know, we're just going to talk about the weather or unless that's an area of interest um, <laughs> or, or, you know, um, nothing in particular, that's probably going to be hard. And this is why people who are neurodivergent often hate small talk. Yeah. Because what's the point? Yeah. Right? Whereas neurotypical people are like, oh, well, the point is this is just what you do. This is part of the tribal contract. Yeah. They want to dive deep into a subject area and really have a good mm. discussion about mm. it. Like mm. most of my really close friends are people that share my passions or different areas of interest. Yeah. And we could just talk for hours and hours about them and really enjoy that time together. But somebody that's not interested in that area might find, you know, it's awkward. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I think that's how you and I really connected, right? We have mm. like lots of the same interests. Um, mm. And yeah, we really enjoy kind of exploring those. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel too, um, it just depends on how flexible you are. Like if you have, um, neurodivergent people in your life, um, or you are neurodivergent yourself, it's just about being flexible about the type of communication Mm, mm. that you have going on. I think rather than expecting to people have these really rigid, um, methods of communication, um, and spending time with each other, um, it can look different, but it doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, not enjoyable. That's such a good point, Monique, about being flexible because, as I said before, there's no right or wrong way for a nervous system to be. For There's no right or wrong way to want to connect or communicate with people. It's just that up until really recently, really I would say even the last five years, right, mm. you know, the neurodivergent um, uh, sort of community or lens has exploded, um, which is really positive. But up until really recently, it was like people who are neurodivergent don't know how to connect. And there is an idea that there is a lack of empathy in people that are um, neurodivergent, um, that you know, they can't understand how other people are thinking or feeling, but that's actually not true. But it might just be from a more logical perspective or um, understanding it um, through a more like having a system in place where you're kind of reading other people's cues, but it doesn't come, I guess, as naturally. Yeah. And, you know, often women on the spectrum say, for example, do have almost extreme empathy um, where it's really hard for them to regulate their emotions because they're so sensitive and they're feeling so much from everyone around them. Um, So I think that diagnostic criteria is, um, yeah, sometimes different um, for women and and for people on the spectrum or neurodivergence. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many differences in the way that neurodivergent and neurotypical people um, communicate at a nuts and bolts level. Um, And we should maybe do an episode just around that. I think that's really interesting to kind of get into. Um, But just kind of quickly there, a really interesting paper published, I think um, in the last five years in the publication Nature found that when you had two neurotypical people talking to each other, communication was fluid. When you had a neurotypical and a person on the spectrum communicating, communication was jarred it was you know problematic but when you had two people on the spectrum communicating communication was fluid 
again. Mm -hmm. And that's because you're speaking the same language. Mm -hmm. It's just about how we go about it. And, you know, whereas it's always been people on the spectrum, people who are neurodivergence job to learn to speak neurotypical, Mm. neurotypicals need to learn to speak neurodivergent as Mm. well. Mm. Um, You know, there's two people in any conversation, in any relationship. And if that communication isn't working, it's not all on the neurodivergent person Mm. to make it work. It's on both people. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, I think too, people can feel quite isolated if they're neurodivergent Mm. um because of being in that minority but it's really i think about finding your tribe yeah so most of the people that i connect with you know at work or my friends um uh, family members most of them are neurodivergent as well and that was without even realizing that each other was neurodivergent it was just naturally clicking and being drawn towards each other Mm -hmm. Um, so i do think your neurotype calls to other people of the same neurotype yeah it's really funny because i definitely think that i'm neurotypical um but yeah most relationships in my life are people who are neurodivergent um And I think, you know, most of my family members are neurodivergent. So um, I think that growing up in that space influenced that a lot. Um, But, yeah, I would totally agree with you, Monique, that you really kind of connect and click with Mm. your own neurotype. And I think neurotypical people have a lot to learn from neurodivergent people, Mm. just like any majority group has a lot to learn from a Mm. minority group, Um, you know, challenging the assumed way of thinking, the assumed way of being. Mm. Um, I 100% think that I'm a much better, richer, uh, deeper person Mm. for having these relationships in my life with people who whose brain type is very different <laughs> to my brain type. I think a lot of people who are neurodivergent in the past, like a lot of people who have been in the science world, um, who've won Nobel Prizes, who've been innovators in technology, um, a lot of them probably were neurodivergent because Absolutely. of that extreme, you know, ability to hyper-focus on your interest. And I think that really leads itself well to um, scientific discovery and um, experimentation and being thorough and analytical. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to make mention of that. Yeah, and not just scientific as well, you know, mm. particularly for women women who are neurodivergent and women on the spectrum and women um, who are ADHDers, they tend to be super creative. Mm. Um, A number of people on the spectrum uh, have perfect pitch. Um, A number of people on the spectrum are incredible musicians, artists, composers, um, writers, um, any form of artistic expression. Um, you know, and, and really when you think about it, science and art are quite linked. Mm. I find art in science. I think science is beautiful in, the, <laughs> in that way. Um, yeah, and, and I think that just goes back to that point earlier mm. around neurotypical and neurodivergent need each other, mm. right? If we try and quash or extinct or eliminate all the things that make someone different, then we're going to lose a massive amount of brain power. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I think too, um, 
say something I've noticed between the difference between neurotypical and neurodivergent brains is often the neurodivergent brain will kind of go around in a circular sort of process. So um, the person's mind might jump to something and then something else related and then something else. And then it might sort of come back and having percolated on all those things, it will make its point. Whereas uh, someone who's neurotypical, their mind, their mind might go from A to B, B to C, C to D. Um, oh my God. Yes. That, and again, this is one of my favorite things to talk about um, neurologically. I, um, the metaphor I use for this is, uh, express trains versus the scenic route. <laughs> so, um, people who are neurodivergent and particularly people who are on the spectrum, but also people who are ADHD is tend to have a much more hyper-connected brain. So all the parts of the brain, um, that are called white matter. So white matter is like our brain's roads and highways that connect kind of different hubs together. People who are on the spectrum definitely, because it's been scientifically measured, tend to have much more white matter than people who are neurotypical. So what that means is that they've got all these kind of interconnected roots uh, through many different hubs in their brain, whereas neurotypical people tend to go through a process called pruning between birth to about 25, where a lot of the white matter tracks or the roads and highways that aren't used very frequently get discarded get you know cleared away so what that means is that for some things people who are neurotypical have more efficient processing so they get to the kind of point quicker but they only have one route to get to that point exactly as you were saying Monique whereas someone who is neurodivergent probably get to that point eventually but they've also made eight sub points <laughs> along the way all these kind of scenic stops along the way to the point um yeah and like i was saying before you know a lot of my really close friends are adhders and i absolutely love having conversations with them because i love where we end up in mm. places where i would never my brain wouldn't take me there mm. yeah yeah, it's interesting because I guess with ADHD, some of the main sort of criteria for that are differences in attention, um, differences in the ability to kind of regulate um, your activity levels, um, hyperactivity, things like that, differences in memory. Um, but yeah, I think it's about embracing and knowing about the way that your brain works rather than trying to force yourself to be in that neurotypical way of thinking? Well, completely. And, mm. you know, the, the diagnostic criteria for um, ADHD in particular, I find, um, again, very male-focused because it's very behaviour-based, mm. right? So it's saying, you know, is this person unable to sit still in their chair? Is this person constantly interrupting others? Is this person um, constantly forgetting things, um, you know, losing belongings, things like that? Someone who has an ADHD brain might do all those things. They might absolutely. And that tends to be men, right, mm. who are actually not trying to regulate or um, monitor their behavior for the comfort mm. of others. They're just living their life as is, right? Um, women might say, oh, yeah, I constantly feel like my thoughts are splintering off into a million ideas. Um, they're having the experience that we described there, Monique, of, you know, kind of percolating on multiple ideas, taking that scenic route. Mm. Um, but because they've been so trained that that's not appropriate for mm. them to do, and it's not okay to be late. 
And it's not okay to not have your things. And it's not okay to not finish this task on time. They're actually um, driven by anxiety. It's almost like mm. the, the stick kind of prevents them from demonstrating those behaviors. So they might not actually show many of those things, mm. but it's because of the massive effort of will to control that. And eventually I think people get exhausted and just burn out. A hundred percent. And yep. you just see this in the clinic all the yep. time. People all the time. present with anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. They just have a massive burnout. Um, and it's because they've been trying to control um, these behaviors. Yeah. And, yeah, I think when you think of ADHD, you just think of that naughty little boy in the classroom that's like can't keep still. He's just disrupting the class. Mm-hmm. But it's much more than that. It could be the little girl in the corner that's staring out the window that's falling behind in her schoolwork, but she just appears really chatty, a little chatterbox and going around and helping everyone else, um, but falling behind in her own work. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think there are those gender differences there that haven't really been accounted for in some of the criteria. Um, because a lot of women tend to present with that more inattentive presentation. Yeah. If they have hyperactivity, it might be more fidgeting. So for example, I was on a zoom call and I'd seen something, um, about, uh, I guess fidgeting and stimming, um, And I hadn't realized before this Zoom call, when I was looking at my face in the Zoom call, I'm just constantly touching my face, twirling my hair, scratching, just can't keep still. And it's like the first time I'd actually realized how much I do those behaviors. And it was like, wow, is that what I guess that hyperactivity can look like? Because it's not what you really think of when you look at um, some of the criteria. I think that's a really good point around how, the diagnostic criteria or what's written in the criteria can actually manifest differently for different people and for women in particular. Um, and in our next episode, what we're actually going to do is go through the diagnostic process. So what's actually involved in getting a diagnosis for these things. And in our episode today, we've been chatting a lot about autism and ADHD, but Obviously, you know, the neurodivergent umbrella includes so many different things. So we've got central auditory processing disorder, synesthesia, sensory processing disorder, the learning disorder. So dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, dyspraxia, face blindness, um, so many ways that a brain can be different, psychosis. Um, so in that next uh, episode that we're going to do, we're going to unpack all of that. So I think that's this episode done. So thanks so much guys for tuning in and for listening to our very first episode. Um, I hope that it was enjoyable. And be sure to like and follow our Facebook page, The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Bye.